This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The war in Ukraine has underscored the woeful state of Canada's military equipment. Experts say we don't have the weapons to fight a modern army. Will this be the catalyst for us to finally meet the NATO target of 2% of gross domestic product to be spent on defense? Right now, we spend about 1.4%. Defense Minister Anita Onan says Canada has exhausted the inventory of equipment in the Canadian Armed Forces that could be supplied to Ukraine. She's promising to put aggressive military spending options before Cabinet. At this point, public opinion is likely on side, but this comes as we're saddled with a huge pandemic debt and as the Liberals have just made expensive promises to the NDP in exchange for support to keep them in power. Libby talked with David Perry, President, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and Stephen Sademan, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. There was already going to be increases anyway, because there's been promises of doing more on northern modernization. There was eventual a decision on the fighter replacement program. So I think there's going to be more money to be spent, and it's certainly one of the biggest fears that the folks in the military had was that in the aftermath of the pandemic, whenever that happens, to get deficits down, people will be looking at the Defense Department, because that's really the biggest hunk of money out there. And they don't have to worry about that anymore. At least they're not going to get cut. And my, my guess is that, yes, there'll be more spending. David Perry, I mean, as uh, just uh, civilians, this idea that that we could not even defend ourselves against a modern army is is pretty shocking. It is, although I think some of that discussion is tending to get um, a lot more overstated than is actually the case. You know, we don't have a military, as an example, that happens to have a large inventory of weapons lying around that we can ship to somebody else, uh, such as the Ukrainians right now. Uh, but that's in part because we haven't designed our military to do that kind of thing. It is the case that there's uh, several parts of the armed forces that are getting increasingly antiquated where we do need to see uh, replacements. Fighter jets is a new one, uh, is a key one, because the planes are flying now are in excess of 40 years old. Um, and so we do need to definitely move forward to deal with some of that recapitalization. Um, there's a big focus and, and need to do some of that from a NORAD continental defense point of view, which is, I think, one of the likely things that the government will commit some uh, additional funding to. Um, but, it, but I think that there's a, a lot of room to have a bit more of a reasoned discussion about exactly where the military is right now, because the sky isn't totally falling. Um, but there's definitely a need for additional investment to modernize. One of the things cited is that we lack these uh, shoulder-launched missiles that have been effective in Ukraine. Is that a big problem, Dr. Sademan? I, I don't think it's a huge problem. Now. I mean, we have those equipment. We just didn't have enough for our own military and for somebody else's. Uh, this is actually amongst the other things that we need that are most easy to achieve because we can just buy it from other countries. It's a less complex procurement process than buying a plane or buying 88 planes, as the case may be. So I'm, I'm not too worried about that. I, and the thing that we have to keep in mind is that when we fight, we always fight with our allies. 
So we don't necessarily need to have everything ourselves if our allies come to the battlefield with things that we don't have ourselves, like Patriot missile systems, for instance. What do you think the impact of uh, Zelensky rising to the occasion in this way, how has that influenced the course of events? Well, it certainly led to uh, greater economic sanctions that he appeared via Zoom at an EU meeting a few weeks ago. And according to what people said at the time, that really turned the the tide on how strongly the EU would line up in doing the sanctions. I think he's made it very, very hard for the democracies of the West not to do more, that we have emptied our shelves of of everything we can find, that there is going to be a lot of financial assistance, um, that we've seen a lot more cooperation than we would have expected a month and a half ago. And a lot of that has to do with Zelensky, both because he's persuasive and because we know that there's somebody to bet on, uh, that it was far easier to support him than to support, let's say, the Free Syrian Army uh, 10 years ago, because he looks like a good bet. Um, that he has been able to make a lot of agile decisions. The, the military, the Ukrainian military is operating really intelligently, uh, and he's been making all the right moves politically to appear to the West as a, as a viable option, and, uh, and he's got great popularity at home right now. So it makes it much harder for the Russians to try to depose him. Uh, final question to David Perry. So uh, where are we at on all of this? I think we're at a spot where we're going to continue ratcheting up uh, pressure on Russia where we can. You know, the few remaining parts of their economy that we haven't fully sanctioned, you can expect more pressure on that as we continue finding new oligarchs to cut off from access to the Western economy. Uh, And we're going to continue looking for ways to incrementally provide more military support. And if this drags on long enough, uh, restock the Ukrainians with the kind of uh, weapons that we've been providing over the last month. David Perry, President, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and Stephen Sademan, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. The Prime Minister was in Brussels where he addressed the European Parliament Wednesday before attending NATO's emergency summit the next day. The military alliance has been steadfast in its insistence that it will not become involved directly in the conflict that includes saying no to a no-fly zone over Ukraine. There's growing concern about what an increasingly desperate Putin will do. His chief spokesperson again raising the specter of a nuclear attack. What kind of room to maneuver does that leave for the West? Let me put that question to Andrea Charon of the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba and Erica Simpson, Associate Professor of International Relations at Western University and President of the Canadian Peace Research Association. Well, I think everyone is expecting that the 30 NATO allies will remain very cohesive and they will remain in solidarity as they have so far in terms of their reaction to a possible land war extending into uh, Poland, Lithuania, Romania. So they have repeatedly said that an attack against one of us is an attack against us all. And that means that uh, uh, essentially Ukraine is not an ally. It's not one of the 30 allies, uh, nor is Moldova. And so the problem, of course, has been for a long time, how do we defend the partners in, in NATO? And NATO has fervently and very strongly said that they will not establish a no-fly zone, but nor will they go to war in Ukraine. However, they are providing armaments, and the United States is shipping over a billion dollars worth of arms. So some Experts are arguing that this could provoke Russia into a possible uh, biological 
chemical or nuclear attack. That being the last, as your spokesman from Russia said, it's an existential threat. Um, so they would use nuclear weapons if they perceived that there was an existential threat to Russia. How that would be interpreted is, is up to them, obviously. Dr. Sharon, what's your view? Well, I largely agree, but I do think there are cracks showing among NATO uh, member states. Uh, Estonia's parliament voted to provide support to a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and certainly many of the publics of NATO countries are calling out for more to be done. So I think that's why this extraordinary meeting is coming into play to either reinforce the fact that the position of NATO is that they will not engage or it might be um, a, a discussion about what more can be done other than as is being done through the EU and the UK and Canada and the coordination of autonomous sanctions. Is there something more that can be done? At the same time, we have a special meeting at the UN General Assembly and the UN Security Council is set to vote on a draft resolution uh, penned by Russia, which is which is not common, uh, on the humanitarian situation in Ukraine, expected to be defeated. But there are lots of uh, organizations that are working in the background to see what more, if anything, can be done. Dr. Sharon, uh, looking at this NATO summit, should we expect sort of a little more of the same or, or something that might put an end to this just appalling carnage? Well, I think there'll be a lot of side conversations. For example, we've heard very little about the numbers that the U.S. would take in in terms of Ukrainian refugees. They said none so far. I would say that those are some of the side conversations that will happen. I I fully expect that the U.S. will confirm that uh, NATO cannot be involved in a no-fly zone, but it's going to be a very tense meeting because there are many publics that that want action to be taken. Every time we see what's happening in Mariupol, you know, these are war crimes. And can can NATO stand by and do nothing and still proclaim to have um, respect for human rights and democratic principles? Good question. Uh, Dr. Simpson, last 20 seconds to you. Yeah, this is an extraordinary unplanned summit. There is a planned summit at Lisbon in Spain in June. And at that point, I think you can expect Canada will increase its spending to 2% of GDP on defense, as will many other NATO allies. They were urged to do so by uh, Donald Trump uh, to no effect. But I think now this crisis will uh, lead to a sharp increase in Canadian defense spending uh, uh, and the other allies' spending. Erica Simpson, Associate Professor of International Relations at Western University, as well as President of the Canadian Peace Research Association, along with Andrea Charon of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, we'll help you steer around all those potholes. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
The wild swing in temperatures is the perfect recipe for particularly bad potholes. Freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw not only makes them worse, but causes delays in the fix. You can see drivers trying to avoid the worst of them, and if they don't succeed, well, it can be an expensive proposition. Meanwhile, the CAA has launched its annual campaign, which allows drivers to vote on which roads you and others think are the worst. Libby discussed both with Teresa DeFelice at CAA South Central Ontario and Vince Sferraza, Director of Operations and Maintenance at Toronto Transportation Services. So at the moment, we have repaired just under 44,000 potholes. And um, we've had a slower start, and that's because winter. Uh, winter stuck around uh, much longer this year. Um, January and February, we had, as you all recall, quite a bit of snow, and we had extremely cold temperatures. And uh, our crews were out uh Maintaining the roads uh, when it comes to winter maintenance at the time. Uh, we were 100% committed uh, 24-7 on removing the snow and dealing with all the other winter issues. Um, now that the weather has started to improve, we have had many more crews now uh, repairing potholes. So we're just slightly under from uh, last year and previous years, but we are catching up. In fact, the last few weeks, we've done quite a considerable amount of pothole repairs. Uh, Teresa DeFelice, it's been, I think, a few days since you launched your Worst Roads campaign. And what are you seeing so far? People have a lot to say. <laughs> uh, which, you know, I, I think it's a couple of things, which is, you know, this is what the CA Annual Worst Roads campaign is about. It's, it's giving people a forum, an opportunity um, to to have their voice or their issues around the road um, the road potholes and and other factors congestion uh, infrastructure and and put it in a more official place because what uh, we did a survey in January and we said seventy two percent of people are are talking about poor road conditions but they're sharing it with their spouses their families and their friends very few just three percent are telling their local government Vince. Is there a recourse if uh, you damage your car because of a pothole? Uh, is there recourse to the city, and how do you access it? Yes, there is uh, a uh, claims process that anyone can access um, if they've experienced damage to their vehicle uh, as a result of driving over a pothole. Um, so any resident or business can, in fact, uh, put in a claim. And I would just say to what um, the other guest said, Teresa, and how that information is very important for us. So very curious that such low numbers are informing their local governments. We have 311, where we ask residents to submit a location of a pothole. We also have crews who do daily patrols across the city. And I would have to say that of all the potholes we repair, over 70, 80% of them are a result of active patrols. But the information that is provided by CAA um, and other organizations is also very useful for us. It's very helpful in helping us uh, prioritize areas where a pothole repair can be beneficial. So that is very useful information as well for us. 
If anyone is aware of a pothole, please report it to the city, uh, 311. There are many ways you can do it, by phone, online. We now have an app, um, and we will get to that pothole, depending on the location, within days. And Teresa? So we encourage your listeners to go to caaworstroads.com and have their say. Uh, you know, we'll compile the list, but we also speak to our, our friends in municipal government and regional governments to highlight the pain points of their constituents. Uh, we've seen lots of great actions from municipalities wanting to address, uh, you know, where, you know, maybe move, move around some of their fixes from when they originally scheduled to address those pain points. So caaworstroads.com until April 19th is where you can vote. Teresa DeFelice at CAA South Central Ontario and Vince Sferraza, Director of Operations and Maintenance at Toronto Transportation Services. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. The first thing we're likely to see from the new Liberal NDP agreement in Ottawa is a proposed new dental plan. Apparently, it has the potential to benefit millions of Canadians who often don't see a dentist because of the costs. Libby took a closer look with Dr. Carlos Quinones, professor in the dentistry department at the U of T, and Dr. Aaron Burry, interim CEO of the Canadian Dental Association. We know here in Ontario where the best data uh, is available that, um, um, let's just say, about 30,000 visits every year to emergency departments for for essentially toothaches, um, and then uh, 130 or so uh, around there. Don't quote me exactly on the numbers, but uh, visits to physician offices for 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 toothaches, where you know these conditions are not are not treated. Um, you know these conditions need to be treated in dental offices, and so again, inefficient, ineffective use of resources. Um, you know leads to prescribing of antibiotics, and we know antibiotic stewardship is a big issue. Leads to prescribing of of opioid medications or narcotics, and we know that that is not a great thing either. So again, this has an opportunity to really, to really uh, fill some gaps in our existing oral health care system, and then also um, uh, limit the inefficient and ineffective use of scarce healthcare resources. Doctor Burry, as with everything else, the devil's in the details, right? Absolutely. Um, so at this point, you know, very happy to see an announcement uh, with the federal government putting money into dentistry. This is. Uh, Long overdue, I think, in terms of, of that particular investment. Uh, Canada underinvests, you know, versus other other countries, but certainly the devil really is in the details. And I think on our end, that's why we think there is good infrastructure set up already within the provinces. And so we'd like to see uh, some of the improvements in the local uh, provincial plans before we start uh, trying to create something else or something brand new. There are some existing things that work fairly well but need a lot of improvement. This is a great, it would be a great start. I can tell you here in Ontario, what we have is very limited. It is for people who are 65 and over, and the income requirements are for a single person, you have to make less than $22,200 and a couple, 37100 So uh, really what the feds are proposing really would reach a lot more people. Dr. Quinones. Yeah, I very much agree. You know, I, I do want to say that I also agree with Aaron's position that uh, we we significantly underfund dental care in this province and across the country. You know, if you compare us internationally, 
um, you know, the average uh, OECD or, or Organization for Economic Cooperation Development Nation or the rich Western nations invest uh, uh, 33 cents out of every dental care dollar is, is paid for by government here in Canada. It's about four to six cents. And here in Ontario, it's, uh, you know, one or two cents, uh, maybe, maybe that low by this point. So we have a long way to go. Um, um, so I do feel that we need to make more investments. But as you say, this will reach much higher on the income spectrum and address a, a major gap in, in dental care coverage and access, which is, uh, you know, working poverty, which is uh, middle-income folks who who um, may not have any type of insurance. So uh, we, we need to do a lot here, and uh, and I hope this is just a start. You know, if you look across the country, and even if you go internationally, you will find programs that are working, programs that are running effectively, um, you know, best practices that, that we can leverage. Um, and I would actually also like to say that this federal uh, announcement provides an opportunity to think about some of the things that have challenged uh, um, oral health care programs across the country. You know, maybe it's time to get us all on the same page so that we have the same income thresholds, so that we cover the same things, and essentially, ultimately, you know, keep the end user always in mind, because that's what Mm -hmm. And Dr. Brewery, last 20 seconds to you. So again, we're really looking forward to working with the federal government to bring something that I think would uh, be world-class and something that uh, everybody can be proud of. Dr. Carlos Quinones, professor in the dentistry department at the U of T, and Dr. Aaron Burry, interim CEO of the Canadian Dental Association. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to The Best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls, including Pat in Toronto, on whether Canada should be spending more on its military. A key thing for everybody to remember, 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So, I mean, our primary defense in this country would be from the Americans. Yes, we should do things on our own, but we've got to remember that 90% factor. I mean, that, that really changes the game. Rosie in Guelph doesn't see the point of increasing our defense spending. Canada has always been a peacekeeping nation, and I really support that. And quite frankly, the evil megalomaniac that we have acting now in the headlines, all he has to do is push a button if he wants to aim it at Washington, New York, where does collateral damage? So I don't really see why spending a whole bunch more money on basically weapons that are going to be useless anyway. Bridget in Toronto welcomes talk of a proposed national dental care plan, but still has some questions. I'm so glad they're doing this. I actually am self-employed and in my 50s and don't uh, qualify for anything in terms of dental. I've been paying out of pocket for at least two, well, three or four years. Um, I have a root canal coming up next week, quite fun, and that's $1,500. So I, I'd be interested, so I'm glad they're doing it. I'd be interested in knowing 
how will it, what will it look like? Is this, I mean, will we be able to claim it on our taxes? Um, what would be the method? John in Peterborough is wary of the dental plan. I hope they run this better than they do the one for Ontario. Because I have a friend, he's in the lower income, and I had to help him to do it about a year and a half ago. He still hasn't seen a dentist. Signed up, got it all done. They were supposed to have an appointment, and they called him and said, no, we can't bring you in. Uh, put him back till this June. Now, that was a year and a half ago. You have to go to their dentist. Yeah. So I don't understand why there's not a system whereby you could go to a dentist you know or where you're comfortable, whatever, and they give so much money. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Olga in Toronto about her efforts to bring family over from Ukraine. My family um, is in Canada and we have lots of relatives in Ukraine. For now, we were able to evacuate um, our elderly grandmother from Chernihiv. She experienced uh, two weeks of horrific bombings and she's very distraught. For now, we were able to house her in the outskirts of Kiev. However, now that we're looking at, desperately looking at measures uh, to bring her here uh, and waiting for a lawyer to call us back and contact us, it, it's a very inefficient and very cumbersome process. So she's in Kiev. We need to bring her to Warsaw. Not everybody has resources to you know, accommodate their relatives for months on end, waiting for biometrics and waiting for visas. Even if the biometrics is waived, let's say, during her advanced stage, still even waiting for two weeks sitting in Kiev is dangerous. She literally can get killed any minute. That's the stress that people are going through. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or, if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.